We are outdoor ladies who hunt, fish, camp, and more, all while working in conservation. I am Julia Plugi with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. And I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I am Tana Wagner with the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And we want to see you outdoors. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. So beavers, they're carpenters of the animal kingdom. They are the master construction builders, instrumental in creating habitat for the aquatic organism world. So while I am struggling to build a castle using cardboard and duct tape for my daughter, beavers are building these dams that serve as a protective nursery for their young, you know, and walls that literally control and trap the the warmth inside, which I was just amazed to when I was doing a little bit of research. To just, I thought that was so cool. Like they're even adding some insulation there. I, uh, you know, I've seen a number of beaver dams that are just so massive and they've been there for years. And then I, you know, I also see kind of what is building up around it as far as the water and how it is control that waterway. So, you know, the, these dams, they, they have weathered the worst storms uh, they've stuck through drought, which we are witnessing a lot, even like right now. Uh, you know, North America's largest rodent, I'm going to use the word rodent for a reason, <laughs> is more than just a mammal with a large tail and big teeth. There's a lot going on there. So a story in the December issue of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever of Nebraska's n- newsletter caught my eye. An article titled, Busy Beavers. Simply, but it was an intriguing topic. Like, this is, this is cool. I want to I wanna read about it. The article took a spin that I, I really didn't expect. In addition to their own need, the beavers need, the dams are beneficial to the ecosystem in many ways. Knowing that the value of the dam is so beneficial, humans are working to like literally attempt to hand build these similar structures in other ways uh, so it can, again, benefit that, that ecosystem around them in that area. So after reading the article, I, I invited the team working on this project to the podcast. So listeners, welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. You got Rachel and Julia on the mic today. And we are so excited to have some guests with us today. Um, as I look outside, it's negative something or other. And it's so hard to even think about spring animals being out, just all of the excitement that's that's coming our way. But before we jump into our topic of beavers today, I want to inter- welcome, first off, our guests and have them introduce themselves. Um, really want to hear a little bit about yourself, what organization you're with, you know, how did you get into this career? It's so interesting of all our guests, how they they all come from different angles and and different backgrounds. So please share with us a little bit about yourselves. Um, just going to pick on someone. I'm going to start with Cassidy. Welcome. Good morning, and I'm Cassidy Wessel. I work for the Nebraska Game Parks Commission as a private lands wildlife biologist. So what we do around the state there's there's a bunch of us in every district and we basically work with farmers and ranchers because nebraska is 97 percent privately owned um i guess very similar to iowa and so unless we 
unless we find a way to work with people and find those win-wins, our ability to do good things for wildlife is pretty limited. And so that's really our mission. And um, I guess I got started in this field when I was a kid. My dad was a hardcore doctor and we would go out and we would sit on the banks of the Platte River and, you know, you have your good days, but you have a lot of your, your bluebird days too, where you spend a lot of time just talking and we'd talk a lot about ethics and what is it our job to, to pass on to the next generation and leave behind. And so I guess I always knew I wanted to do this. My first job was as a technician in high school. I'd wake up and at six in the morning and, and drive an hour to go look for grass and bird nests every day in the summer. And went to Wayne State College in Northeast Nebraska. Um, got my degree in wildlife biology there. Um, after that, got a job as a, a farm bill biologist with Pheasants Forever for a while before I did this. And that's really very similar work. Um, I spent some time on stream research and kind of in that world. And so here we are today. All right, next on the chopping block, Jessica. The chopping block, I like that. Sounds very welcoming. Well, hi, my name is Jessica Householder and I'm with Juniper Environmental. We are a very small environmental-only consulting firm. Uh, We are actually a woman-owned small business that is based in Alden, Illinois. I sit in Springfield, Illinois. And how I came on board is I'm I'm a little bit of everything. I'm kind of a generalist as far as what I do professionally, but I primarily do uh, work in wetland science, uh, vertebrate ecology, and then I also do a lot in the world of permitting and environmental law and policy, which as you all know, there's there can be a lot to navigate there. So, um, so I'm from a small town in South Central Illinois, uh, about 10 or 12,000 people. And I went to school at Eastern Illinois University, got a really great education there. Um, I studied biological sciences. And I, I always knew I loved animals and wildlife. I love things that grow. And I, I kind of floundered, though, while I was at school. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do with that degree. I just knew I loved, you know, animals and the environment. And I had a professor while I was there, uh, Dr. Colombo. He's a fisheries biologist. And he really believed in me. Uh, he pulled me aside after class one day and he was like, you know, kid, you got it. Like, this is the field you need to be in. Here's what you need to do. Uh, I kind of took all that advice to heart and now I'm out working on really cool restoration projects, uh, infrastructure projects for, for rail, uh, things I'm really excited about and that I think will hopefully leave the world a little better than I, than I found it, right? That's awesome. It's, it's so fun to hear that, you know, um, you had someone that believed in you and then you were able to kind of follow that through. Uh, before we move on, you mentioned an acronym, BDA, and for listeners and myself who have no idea what that is, I'm sure we'll get into it, but can you uh, do a spoiler alert and just bring us up to speed as to what the acronym means? I can, absolutely. Uh, these acronyms, they become so second nature when you're looking at these things all the time and reading about them. So a BDA is a beaver dam analog. So it is an artificially human constructed structure made using natural materials, kind of modeled off of the structures that beavers make themselves. So this is an in-stream 
a log jam, for example, that's going to kind of slow the flow of water and create those secondary effects that we're after with these structures in the first place. But I, I digress. We'll get there, right? Yeah, we're looking forward to it. But we have one more person to introduce. I won't I won't put them on the chopping block because apparently that's that's not as nice. So I'm going <laughs> to welcome them to the mic instead. Uh, Ellie, will you introduce yourself? Excellent. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Ellie Nugent with Ducks Unlimited. We are a nonprofit wetland and waterfowl conservation organization that works across uh, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. I happen to be here in Nebraska and cover the state of Nebraska. And how I really got into this field is I grew up on a cherry orchard in Michigan, and that really instilled in me just the importance of the land and resources. And we also had a little wetland on our property, and I spent a whole lot of time there as a kid getting wet and muddy and just having an all-around good time. And that's really where I first learned about wetlands, and I haven't haven't lost that love yet. <laughs> so I ended up at, uh, went to Michigan State University for my undergrad in environmental studies and applications and decided I wasn't done with school yet, wasn't ready to to enter the workforce. I just wanted to keep learning. So I got a master's degree at Oklahoma State University that focused on wetland ecology and management. And then ended up in Nebraska, followed a job to Nebraska, um, first working at the Rainwater Basin Joint Venture. Um, and after a, a few steps along the way, I'm now with Ducks Unlimited. Well, thanks, ladies. Thanks for introducing yourself. It's always wonderful to to give a little background. Our listeners know that Julia and I came from very, very, very varied. That's quite a phrase of a variety of backgrounds. And um, so it's always fun to hear how people got into this world. But as we start talking about these, now I'm going to use the the lingo because I feel like I'm I'm learned up on it, BDAs. Um, we want to talk about the beaver a little bit. Uh, Julia mentioned that beavers are North America's largest rodent, but unlike other rodents, they have a unique body structure that makes them able to live in water. Of the three of you, would someone mind telling us a little bit more about maybe the biology or the body structure of a beaver? I'm not a beaver expert, and so I'm going to hijack your question a little bit. So there's a... um, there's a book called Fur, Fortune, and Empire, which talks about the role of the beaver historically in the United States and really, really how that as a resource is sort of an under-recognized, under-recognized push to what brought people here. I mean, it was a huge, huge market and how the the French and the Danish and everybody expanded how they did. But the the implication of that is that by the time most of the rest of the people who came got to see America, they were seeing it without those beaver numbers. And so the things that we think are maybe normal and natural and the way that streams and wetlands and all that are supposed to be, we were seeing it without maybe one of the most important drivers on the landscape that uh, that was there. And, you know, that's that's similar to a lot of the other natural disturbances that really drive the way our landscape looked, you know, 
for a long time, we didn't think fire was a good natural thing. And it's, we're slowly learning that that was an integral part of what made our prairies possible that without fire, we don't, we don't have prairies. And so without beaver, there's a, there's actually a stream classification system and it, it goes by number. That is just the shape of the stream. And within the last couple of years, they have proposed adding a new number stage zero to that, which is what a stream looks like probably with beaver in it. And so just that evolution of, of what beavers do and our understanding of that is we've come a long way. I'm sure we have a lot, a lot of distance to cover yet in just learning about it. But um, the beaver itself, you know, they've got, um, they are, they are incredible engineers and there's a lot of questions about how prevalent were they in these prairie states, states where we didn't have lots of trees, but there is a fur trade museum in Shadron that um, they've actually gone back and looked at the records there. And some of the, I mean, it's as far back as records go that we have. And you know, they were, they were part of our systems also. And so, you know, everything from not only do they build dams in the streams, but they, they will burrow into the banks and have, have lodges in the banks. If they have a food source that is out and away from the stream a little bit, they'll, they'll dig channels so they can safely get to that food source. And so you're adding wetland complexity with those beavers as well. Um, we actually, we even have some stream fish in the sandhills that, that really, really key in on and thrive on habitats that, that beavers create. And so, so we may have to get a more of a landscape person than a beaver person, but um, may have to, may have to pull another beaver person in. But uh, that's, that's what, what I can offer, I suppose. That's what links are for, right? We can drop a link yeah. in and they can go to a website and, you know, they're just, it's pretty kind of cool that they're, uh, they're able to live that aquatic environment. You know, they have that thick waterproof fur, you know, that webbed hind feet for swimming. And it's, it's that, that body structure that allows them to, you know, to be able to become those engineers uh, and, 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 and construct what we need uh, and is so valuable within our environment. Yeah, I'm glad Cassidy mentioned the word complexity because that's that's kind of the key element that beavers are bringing to the landscape. They are adding a level of complexity and a layer of uh, heterogeneity in the landscape, um, creating diverse and different little pockets of habitat, be that deep water habitat that is pooled behind their structures or, you know, fast moving little ripples um, for small moving fish to move through, right? Or, uh, sorry, for small, fast-moving fish. And I think, what was it, you had a question about what is it about beavers that kind of allows them to to live their lifestyle? So right. I can probably speak to that a little bit. Uh, you'll it. notice if you look at a beaver, they're, they're pretty round, right? They're, they're not like some long, lean animal. They are rather orb-shaped. Uh, so they have a very low surface area to volume ratio. 
And that allows them to conserve heat when they spend so much time in, in water. Uh, even, you know, in the dead of winter, they're still swimming in, in those deep water habitats if, if those are available to them. That, that oily fur, like you mentioned, that repels water. Um, it's also very, very thick. And there's a downy undercoat that, that traps air against the skin. So that skin is, or that air, sorry, is, is warmed up and that helps insulate the beaver as well. So, you know, they have all these re- remarkable adaptations that allow them to make the most out of their environment. Uh, if you've ever seen a picture of them where their teeth are exposed, or if you've seen a skull, you'll notice they have this orange tinge to them. It's because their teeth are actually fortified with iron uh, because they really take a beating, right? All, all the chewing and gnawing they do. Uh, so, you know, another really incredible adaptation they have. I never knew that they were fortified for, with iron. I mean, I know that they, they gnaw and that basic level of knowledge that I know is, I mean, they're, they're gnawing on that wood to keep, to keep, cause it's constantly growing. Um, yeah, but then that iron, that's so cool. So cool. You know, so, so beavers arc, we've, we kind of, we started touching this. Cassidy started bringing it up and that's the conversation. We're going to talk a little bit more about how the beavers are, uh, they truly are almost necessary for a true landscape that we want to continue to build in our environment, you know, and beavers are, are considered by some a nuisance or a pest because of the way they pond up water um, or they decrease a downstream flow, uh, perhaps even constantly take down trees. But, you know, besides that, you know, but that stuff is going on, but yet on that other part of that system is it it is beneficial to that ecosystem. And within that article I read, there was a lot of cool ways that the beavers are beneficial. Who wants to touch on that for us? I can touch on that one a little bit. This is one thing that I knew beavers did a lot of good work, important work in the landscape, but it wasn't until we really started some of this research that I learned that they do more than I ever realized. So across the United States, we've channelized a lot of streams to help with, for different reasons, um, you know, and that, that channelization has increased velocity and caused incision of streams. And it might not just be from channelization. There could be other reasons, but a lot of our streams in this country are, are incised and that drops the water table in the surrounding area and beavers and their beaver dams and all the different structures that they build help um, actually raise that stream bed back up so that it reverses that incision. And that does a lot of important things. Um, It also can help the stream re-meander like it should. um, And that can uh, reduce water velocity and then which can delay and reduce downstream flooding. Um, it also raises that water table back where it's supposed to be, which helps reconnect the natural wetlands that were by that stream with the water table so they can function properly. Um, it also helps the vegetation around it, especially in drought times, because there's a much higher water table, which you know allows them to, to function better when there's not as much rain. So it really helps green up vegetation. It increases the diversity of plants in the area. And all of that can help um, increase habitat quality for wildlife. It increases forage production for cattle. And it can help 
um, prevent spread of wildfire if those plants aren't really dried out. Um, you know, if they have enough moisture content, it's been shown to, to um, prevent wildfires from spreading across that area. Cassidy mentioned the importance of fire, but you know, there is a difference between a prescribed fire that we're, we planned on and a wildfire that's spreading like crazy. So they're really great for fish and wildlife habitat, as others have touched on, and they provide all sorts of kind of, it's a chain reaction of events that occur just because beavers are there and doing their thing and, and being nature's engineers. Quick follow-up, you mentioned meandering rivers, and, and for the non-biologists in the room like myself, that... I'm going to super simplify it so that I'm following. A meandered river is, in other words, the water going where it wants to go, not necessarily where humans want it to go. Would would that be a accurate That's super exactly. layman's term? Yep. So basically, streams that have curves to them. You know, we we like stream that can swing back and forth instead of if it goes in a straight line. It's you know that water's flowing really fast and it increases velocity and can have flood implications and yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a good uh, visual aid, I think for, since you guys can see me, but with an incised stream, kind of what's happening is the stream is cutting downwards. So you kind of have all your water pooled into one incised channel. Now the problem with this is that in a normal system, that's kind of more at equilibrium. When we talk about a stream that's meandering, well, when we put those structures in and sediment kind of aggrades on the bottom of that stream bed, that allows that water level to raise and that stream bed kind of widens out. So when that happens, the water is at a level where it can kind of meander from side to side. It can reconnect with those floodplains and recharge the groundwater in an area. Another important thing with that, since we're talking about wetlands, is that when that water is able to access those floodplains, that's typically where you're going to get really good quality wetlands because you need that hydrology and you need, those soils need to be wet enough to develop hydric soil characteristics to support vegetation, hydrophytic vegetation that likes, you know, a wet, moist environment. And those habitats are so rich in diversity and they provide so many resources to wildlife, to cattle, to us, right? So that's kind of why that's important and how that happens from a degraded state back to a state more at equilibrium. And, and for our listeners that are listening and, and weren't able to see the visual, in other words, if you take your hands and make a little, a legit V in front of you, you can really see it. And then they're flattening out. So your palms are up. So that's kind of showing the, the, the bottom of the river is going from that harsh, harsh, sharp V um, just kind of to a, a little bit of a U. Um, so that that's letting that water come up, but that's, that's awesome, Jessica. It's, yeah. it's, it's much appreciated from the non, um, biologists in the room. Cause sometimes in this world, I'm just like layman's terms. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, uh, thanks, thanks for bringing it down. Sometimes you have to get on us biologists about that because you know, we're, we're nerds and we're used to talking to each other. Right. So we throw this crazy lingo around, but I actually started my career. My first professional job was at a nature center in Mattoon, Illinois, the Douglas Hart Nature Center. Um, Beautiful place if you ever get the chance to visit. But what I did there was I was a naturalist in addition to uh, grounds maintenance and habitat maintenance. So I had to learn how to break these very complex ideas down for groups anywhere from preschoolers to, you know, senior citizens who were out for, you know, bird club or what have you. Um, So hopefully I can 
jump in with some breakdowns where needed, I guess. Rachel Thanks. and I will use that fourth grade level. It's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. Um, and, and in fairness, we all nerd out about different things. Uh-huh. Um, but, and it's, it's enjoyable to be amongst other, other nerds. So hundred um, percent. Oh, so, okay. So I want to d- dive into the project that you guys, you guys are working on. Um, you mentioned BDAs. I haven't read the article, unlike Julia. So will you kind of explain the project, what's going on, and and walk us through where you are in the process? Yeah, so really what happened is we started hearing about this work that was done in the Western United States. You know, people were trying to imitate beavers using BDAs and things they call post-assisted log structures, which are really just another name for pretty much the same thing. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, we started hearing about all the different things that they could do and how they were really starting to spread across the Western United States, the Intermountain West, they're common in Utah and, and really all across, spreading across the West. And we thought, well, can we apply that here? We have streams with issues that could really be helped with this maybe. So, Let's see if if the same applies here in the Great Plains like it does in the Western United States, where it's a whole lot flatter for sure. <laughs> and, you know, maybe different different flow patterns than, than what happened in the West. So we set up a study that involved two sites in Nebraska and two sites in Kansas. Um, there a bunch of different partners became involved. Ducks Unlimited, Juniper, and the Kansas Alliance for Wetlands and Streams were really the three big ones that that started this work. But since then, Nebraska Game and Parks Commission has become involved and Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. Uh, Evergy in Kansas, I'm sorry, Evergy, if I got your name wrong. <laughs> um, and I know there are other partners, uh, lots of other partners involved that it'd take a while to list all of them, but yeah, just a, a whole diverse group of, of folks that decided that this was something they wanted to learn about. Um, and so it was really in Juniper that, that set up the study um, of exactly how we were gonna measure things and what we were gonna measure. But it, it really started with just a few of us getting together and thinking, well, maybe we should try this too. Um, so at this point, uh, I'll let Cassidy, I guess, jump in with with landowners here in Nebraska and how that all got started. You know, one of we had two sites in Nebraska, and one is the Sand Hills Stream and the Eastern Sand Hills, which the Sand Hills of Nebraska, it's actually still kind of an active dune system. It's very, very fine sand substrate, and then. It's also one of the largest intact grasslands left in the world. And we also had another site that's up near the confluence of the Niobrara and Missouri River, up kind of by Yankton, South Dakota, would be the closest big town that people might recognize. And that's that's more of a tall grass prairie site with your typical heavier soils. And um, And this one actually has has some some larger rock substrates because we sit at the southern extent of where the glaciers came down. And so we've got two two pretty different systems. But the thing that made 
these two sites stand out out of all the places that we could have gone is that we had two landowners in these places who had come to us previously and said, can we build beaver dam analogs? <laughs> like they, um, they had seen it on YouTube. Um, our, our landowner in the Sand Hills, so to give them a shout out, it's the Gotchel family. They're, they're in Clover Cove Ranch. Um, it's also a bison operation, meat place. The guy grew up there because he was born there. And as a kid, he spent every day on that stream, walking it, trapping it, um, working there. And all through growing up, there were beavers there. And so he was in that. He saw just that, what they could do for the place. And um, since that time, the property above them, the creek was straightened. And so with that straightening, you get a, the velocity really started to, to roll through. And there were beavers there, but they they actually got blew out in the flood of, of 2019. But as that velocity came in, it just started, it was more than the stream was designed to handle. And so instead of weaving back and forth and making new channels and having that freedom to move across floodplain, it started to cut down. And um, it cut down so significantly that he started to think I need beavers. Back. And so he had started this conversation before the study ever came up. He was a great fit for it. Um, our other landowner, they're more recent transplants to Nebraska. They're actually used to ranch out in, in the front range of Colorado, but very similar story. They had spent time fishing in the mountains and really watched, watched the places where the beavers had worked in the mountains and became curious about it and started to started to look at that they when they moved here we keep coming back to the floods of 2019 in nebraska those are those are epic those are going to stick in our heads for a long time and they watched what that stuff did and um and the ecological damage that it caused in some places where our, our streams were just no longer designed and so they had come to us also so these were these were great fits and we that would be the raven camp family and it's been amazing to work with them because their eyes on the ground, they're calling all the time with updates that they're excited about it. And, um, you know, beavers are, um, they're touchy subjects because they, if something dams up a stream where humans have put something, a road, a fence, a home, a barn, then, then that's, that's work that, and it's also a lot of potential for, for loss. And so, so historically, you know, as, as an agency, we, we put out beaver, beaver damage permits that if this is about to happen, we allow people to go, go take care of that and save their, you know, in some cases save their barn or, you know, save a road crossing so they can get to, get to places. And so, when you've spent so long, you know, that being kind of the only interaction with beavers in the mountain states, they have a lot more room to let the streams move. And so I think we're going to have to learn a lot more about how to live in close proximity to beavers here. And the other thing about building these structures is sometimes, sometimes you're building that foundation that 
you start to slow the water and deepen it up a little bit. And beaver snake, that's awesome. So they move in. And so we were very lucky with these landowners in that all of those all those things, they said, you bet, let the stream meander again, let the stream move. Uh, we'll figure out how to deal with it. But not everybody's quite that lucky, I suppose. And that's just, that puts the onus back on us as natural resource professionals to try to figure out what the solutions are and and not push something that that's going to cause damage anywhere. There's There's things that we can do that are called beaver levelers that, you know, you, you put like a slotted PVC pipe in a dam or something that, that never lets the water get above a certain level. We've just, we've got a lot to learn here in the Midwestern states about how this will come out. But at the same time, you mentioned stream incision and our streams are so different than how they looked 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. When you drive over a bridge and you look you look 30 feet down, it's not supposed to look that way. And so we don't have the financial resources or the time to do all the fixing that needs fixed, um, especially with high dollar stream restoration projects. And so these low tech structures are incredibly exciting if we're going to make a difference at scale. That was really long. I'm sorry. No, it's phenomenal. That was a great response. And it kind of gave us a full picture of the project and, and what you're aiming to, to do. And that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's nice that we can implement these on a relatively small scale with a relatively small budget, as opposed to those larger restoration projects like Cassidy was talking about, where you might need, you know, engineering plans, you might need to do some sort of floodplain analysis. But because this is so small and localized and easily manipulated, right, uh, by people, because the materials we're using are man-made and not harmful to the environment, we are able to kind of streamline some of the red tape stuff so that we can get results that really, you know, benefit the local community, but don't take a ton of, of resources and arduous work to get to. So I want to be clear because, you know, we're talking about this human built structure. You're, you're almost acting as that, that beaver. Um, but is oh, the intent the to have the structure and the beaver or is it the intent just to have the structure and then maybe hope that a beaver might find it? So, yeah. So that depends on our landowners. Some landowners are uh, very open to having some beavers move in and continue to kind of maintain those structures for us and even expand their footprint. You know, at, at other locations, maybe they aren't as compatible with having beavers on site. Uh, so what we're really looking to do either way is we're looking to kick off these processes because the process itself, letting the river do the work eventually is what we hope to get to. So the nice thing about the structures is that they can be maintained by us or by the beavers. You know, if, if we're in a spot where the beavers move in and they're welcome, but once those processes kick off, that river starts to meander and create a little bit of lateral erosion, right? So where it starts reconnecting out towards that floodplain, that can kind of snowball and create additional processes that kind of revitalize and, uh, you know, restore that environment without us having to be out there every week or every month, what have you, shoring up our dams and stuff, right? And it's an, it's an interesting process because, you know, a lot of times we think about 
uh, working on land, we think huge machinery, we think big culverts and, and just these big mechanical processes. But by using utilizing a, a homemade structure, for lack of a better term, you're then kind of letting the natural resources or the or the the area do the work for you. It's 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 kind of a fun look on it and, and take on on the process. Yeah. And it's nice that, you know, we're doing it on foot or with handheld equipment. So we aren't having to bring in heavy equipment or machinery that is going to further degrade the stream beds or the riparian areas around them. So, you know, it's something anyone can go out and do if you're interested in bringing it to your property. And then I'm, I'm speculating that you picked four spots, two in Kansas, two in Nebraska, so that you could kind of, I mean, it's a pilot, it's a test, you're learning that you pick those specific areas, A, based on interested and willing landowners, which is obviously a huge piece of it. But I'm guessing that all four of them are different river stream structures, different bases, you know, not, yeah. not using geological terms, but different things under the water that uh, that are going to show different reactions. Oh, you have nailed it. We We chose four different sites that are that really represent different habitats, right? And the nice thing too is that they're at different latitudes. So we can kind of see, you know, how how climate and latitude, you know, how close or far you are away from the equator or the poles, right? Uh, might impact, you know, what we're able to do. Um, different substrates, like Cassidy and Ellie mentioned, some have, you know, large rocks at the bottom of the river. Some are very, very fine sand. So those are kind of additional variables that we're exploring with these pilot sites. That's cool. And and a much better um, worded answer than my question was. So I appreciate that. Um, you guys had mentioned that this was tried and, and is proven successful and used in the West. And once you started talking, it, so I, I was lucky enough to live on Pikes Peak um, in Colorado for six weeks. And while on Pikes Peak, we actually were doing a wetland restoration project and we were physically moving giant boulders and rocks and we were creating an, a natural drainage because it because we have you know um asphalt roads that go up the the mountain when the water the snow hits that asphalt it then picks up velocity flies down the mountain and has created gullies so there the intent was to create much more much slower moving water and so not the same process, but a very similar process to what you guys are talking about with the the meandering streams. You know, we were trying to create a high mountain wetland. I'm guessing for someone much smarter in the room, they're probably going to try and attract beavers. I was excited more about the moose and other larger animals that we might be able to see. But um, but now thinking back to it, I'm guessing the biologists and the much smarter people were like, yes, you know, we need you physical person to move this rock, but ultimately um, we're going to let the wetland bring itself back. So um, it's, it's really kind of fun to hear that a concept that's working in a different section or area of the country is now coming to the Midwest to hopefully make some, make some strides here. So um is there anywhere else in the Midwest that this has been tried or you guys are the, the, the brain children. And then by you guys, I mean, all partners of this project, you mentioned many different partners, but is, is this kind of the first in the area? There's also some work going on 
actually in western Nebraska, uh, in the Panhandle, where the U.S. Forest Service is is doing some of this on their property, and they're actually working with a local college, Shattering State College, to do some evaluations on it as part of their hydrology class, and so that's kind of neat. Um, on up into South Dakota, and the agencies that have sponsored sponsored that grant. I might have to get back to you and afraid I'm going to speak on it, but I want to say it's World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy that that helped get some of the funding and some of the effort on the ground for that. But um, you know, that's that's just our kind of limited limited scope of knowledge. I think everybody in the Midwest is kind of in the same boat of we we watch this happening in the Western states and. You know, first place I saw it was actually watching the Sage Grouse Initiative really closely because it was a working lands program. We have prairie grouse in Nebraska, neat concept. Um, and one of the things that they were doing is their streams were incising through the mountains and they were going in and doing this restoration, bringing the water table back up in those mountain valleys. And that was one of the limiting factors for sage grouse, they needed that habitat type for breedery. And when they lost that lush area full of insects and that, then all of a sudden they didn't have the breedery and habitat that they needed. And so you can do all the other work that you want to, but if you don't get up to that limiting factor, then you don't make a difference in the long run. So, you know, watching that, watching some of those take off, um, talking to some people who worked in the Western states and realizing just how much momentum this is this is building. I think there's people all over the Midwest that are right at that same stage that we are. When we first started brainstorming for this, you know, our very first step was just to kind of talk about, well, what are we interested in doing? And then, of course, we had to apply for grant funds because that's how how this world tends to work. Um, so when we did that, we didn't know of any other studies at the time, but since then we've, as we've dug into it more and it seems like it's kind of hit this area all at once of, you know, there seems to be quite a few groups then that kind of got onto the idea and are trying to try and just trying it out here in the great plains. Um, since we've, installed our sites here in Nebraska, even the, the structures on the sites here in Nebraska. Um, we've even had a couple other landowners that have come forward of, well, maybe I want that on my property too. So it's, it's spreading, but you know, it's still, still pretty new here. So, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about science here like this this is all about science like you come up with this idea or you see someone else to do it and you want to implement it you want to try that science so with any research project that there are a lot of unanswered questions uh you know what makes that's what makes science so interesting um so moving into that from what i envisioned as a simple human and you know building this tree fort out of these Legos is what they're immensely doing. It really is it, right? So this project, it wasn't built overnight. And, and with all that in mind, there's a lot of questions there. So 
I want to know, like, first, that hypothesis. We've talked about that hypothesis. Now, talk about that procedure. And as that procedure is coming up, what what questions are coming out? Like, oh, but what about this? What about that? This could happen. What are what is in the top of your head as as you've started building this science project up? Well, that's a really good question. You know, when we when we started this, you know, the main things we were thinking about were basically all those things that we talked about earlier of raising local water tables, impacts on fish populations and vegetation diversity um, and some other similar things like that. We we thought, well, how, you know, so we wanted to see how exactly they impacted those same same processes, same same factors here in the Great Plains. So we set up the study to the the first year we just collected pre-installation data. Um, and that was really led by by Juniper. They've done a great job on that, but our other partners have come in to help as well. Um, some of the fisheries folks with with Game and Parks Commit Nebraska Game and Parks Commission helped um, as well as uh, some other great great partners. Um, I know Cassidy's helped with some of that um, data collection. And then this last fall, we installed the structures and we plan to get two years of post-installation data. So at this point, we don't have a lot of answers. We're still just trying to collect, collect the data, collect, you know, try and, try and figure this out. Um, we have learned some things already. Um, during installation, we we learned some some key things. Maybe Cassidy now would be a, a good time if you want to kind of go over what some of the landowners have said about how they're functioning on the property and things like that. Yeah, there's the the coolest and the toughest thing about any research project is that you're always going to end with more questions than answers. And um, so Aldo Leopold wrote a Sand County Almanac, among many other things. He was really he was really one of the first wildlife biologists in the field in, in North America and absolutely just paved the way for the rest of us. But a Sand County Almanac is a collection of his thoughts in a series of essays. And one of those is while he's sitting on a bus going through Iowa and Illinois. And Conservation at this point, when he's taking this bus ride, is very new. Um, Soil Conservation Service at that, which is now the Natural Resources Conservation Service, had just been formed, kind of, kind of as a reaction to the the drought of the 1930s, and um, people are starting to do things like build terraces and do other, you know, just just really getting rolling. And he's driving through the countryside looking at all this stuff happening in the watershed where conservation is very active. And he's, he's musing as he looks at the terraces that are being built on the hills to slow the water down and the straightening of streams to speed the water up because flooding was a concern. And he thinks, I wonder if the water gets confused by all our good advice. And that's a quote that absolutely sticks with me because you know, what What don't we know yet? And all we can do is keep on doing things and keep on learning, but, but we have to learn with humility. And I think when people have concerns, 
the worst thing that we can do as scientists, as natural resource professionals, is to say, oh, don't worry about it. It's good for the environment. I think, I think sometimes we come off that way. But um, if we really dig into those concerns, then that's what's going to allow us to be successful in the long run. And, and you know, one of them actually comes right from within our own profession. Uh, what do these things mean for fish passage? Our prairie, free, our prairie stream fish are, by most of the research that's been done, absolutely terrible jumpers. And so much of the conversation in stream work right now is we have a gridded road system throughout the Great Plains that was put in place to get our commodities to market. We have potential for a barrier to upstream movement every mile. And so what is that when all this conversation is about getting our barriers documented so we can start to figure out where we need to remove barriers and reconnect habitat and we're building other barriers. Um, I was just at the Nebraska American Fisheries Society conference and that came up and you know, in Nebraska, we actually have glacial relic fishes. We have uh, northern red belly dace, pearl dace, um, fine scale dace that totally key in on the habitat that beavers create. It's very, they love it. If, if you go to a beaver dam in a sandhill stream, you're going to find them. There's a connection here. Beaver dams are natural, but, but if we don't, actually address that question if we if we just move on past it and say oh it's going to be fine then maybe we do ourselves more harm in the long run by by just forging on ahead and then thinking about all right how do we answer this question and you know there's the question of what if beavers do show up in a place where we aren't prepared to to mitigate that um so so that's just part of it. That's maybe one of the exciting parts of it. Um, but those are probably some of the questions. We talk about prowl walk run um, with a lot of the things that we do that take this in steps and you're going to fall down. You're going to land on your face every once in a while. And you learn from that and you make adjustments and you get up and you do it better. And so. So I think in a nutshell, that's kind of what I was getting at, that it's not just running out and throwing tree branches in every stream that, that we can find just because, and, and doing it in the name of saving the world. I mean, that's not it. It's, uh, it's very much, very much just what science is. It's a learning process. No, you bring, you bring so many great aspects and points. Um, to our listeners, because I'm going to throw one thing in. Mr. Aldo Leopold is a Iowa native, was a native, Iowa native. So, um, but he did, he grew up on the, in Burlington, Iowa, Southeast Iowa on the banks of the Mississippi and, and talks a lot about the bluffs and playing in the river and all that. But, but his book that you mentioned, San County Almanac is kind of for, for many natural resource, um, professionals it's something that's held in regard like just his 
document of, especially in the Midwest, of, of his time here. Um, there's similar books written. I'm originally from Massachusetts. There's similar books written about people that spent time on the shores of Cape Cod. I might be a little bit personally more partial to that one because I can remember as a, as a youth. But um, at the end of the day, he talks a lot about ethics, land use, and um, and and he gives great some. He just brings some great points on the scientific process. And and to your point, I absolutely agree. A good research project leaves you wondering, but what if, but how, but what, what if we did that, if we tweak this? And so there's always spinoffs, there's always tweaks. Um, and, and that's the beauty of, of working in science and working with professionals from across the country, because whatever you, this project, concludes is going to be the basis of that next project that next project might be in minnesota it might be in florida it might be in georgia don't know where but it's going to be used as as what was learned best practices and then try and be replicated and and see what um see what's found there so I, i commend both of you all of the partners um you know thanks for trying thanks for for putting something new on the landscape to see what happens. How can we get back to, um, to things? But Ellie, I think you, I I think you had maybe one more parting comment on, on this topic. So I want to toss it back your way. I didn't really have any comments. I was just, I had brought up that we had learned some things about, um, about how to install the sites and Raven camps had mentioned a few things, but I guess maybe just a better way to put it was essentially we've just learned more about how, you know, by installing some of these sites, we've learned some some tips and tricks and maybe what to do and some of what not to do in installing these. And and um, so we're already learning things and and hopefully and we plan to continue to learn some more and. And to your point, I mean, it's a huge kudos and thank you to the landowners. Um, We mentioned earlier, Nebraska is 97% private. Iowa's right there with you, right? We physically cannot make any scalable difference on our landscape without the support and, and just willingness of landowners to try to believe in, in the greater conservation belief and, and what's, best for the public. So um, thank you to those that let us in, whether it's to hunt on their land, to physically put structures into their stream beds. Uh, we can't do it without you. And and thank you for your willingness to, to learn and for us to learn so that we can grow and do things better in the future. So um, great point. It, it, it doesn't go unnoticed and and unappreciated especially on this podcast but um just quickly as we start to wrap up if a landowner's listening to this conversation is interested in doing similar um structure or wants to you know reach out to see if this is some possible on their land where can where can we guide them to there are some different options for them and partially just depends on the state. You know, every state there's different people available to talk to, um, but just some general potential places to start um, would be your state 
Department of Natural Resources, game agency, whatever they're called in your area. They often have great resources for you. Um, other options might be local nonprofits. Ducks Unlimited has staff across the country. You could reach out to um, your local natural resources conservation service office. They um, do have cost share for this in parts of the country. So they're a resource um, as well as, you know, maybe your local conservation district. And if not, sometimes if you just reach out to one of those groups, they can often point you in the right direction, even if people in those that the people that you talk to might not know, but, but sometimes they can, they can help connect you with who, who does. Yeah. That's the, the beauty of this community. If, if it's not me, I usually know who to send you to. So, so don't be afraid to pick up the phone or send an email and, and get pointed in the right direction. Yep. Cassidy, I didn't mean to cut you off. You said the exact same thing I was going to say. Perfect. So um, ladies, Thank you so much for joining us. As as we wrap up here, I just wanted to give you opportunity to to any parting words for our listeners, any anything you want to leave them with. I'll I'll start with you, Ellie. We just appreciate the the opportunity to talk about it and um and spread the word about this. Ditto to everything that that Ellie said. You know, this has been a lot of what we do takes a lot of people from a lot of different places. And so this has been a really a great merging of, of federal because the grant itself was funded by NRCS. It's a conservation innovation grant. And, um, you know, we needed to work with the Army Corps and, and NRCS to, to get everything lined up to go. Of, of the private side of things with Juniper being willing to take the lead and, and having the resources to take the lead on it, of Ducks Unlimited coming in and, and offering their expertise and support. Um, with Game and Parks, we actually had two different divisions in on it, our fisheries and, and our habitat partners crew, which is our private lands biologists. And then that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. You guys you guys hit on the landowner side of it very well. We absolutely couldn't be doing it without them. And so I want to just hone in on that teamwork that that made this all possible. And then we had the day the build day, we had double the amount of organizations show up because people wanted to learn. They wanted to get their hands there to get their hands wet. And it was cold. <laughs> they they showed up and helped out anyway. And so one of the books that it's kind of used as a guide is, is Bill Zedike and, and Van Clodier, Let the Water Do the Work. And in the very beginning, there's five reasons to, to tackle building these structures. And the one at the end, it says, uh, finally, number five, do this because it's fun. It requires hand labor to accomplish most of its goals. It requires people, sometimes many people. And there's a joy that happens when people come together to help heal a creek. The joy comes from using muscles unaccustomed to physical labor and getting mud in your shoes and the satisfaction of building something and knowing that you're healing a wound on the land. 
There's joy too in companionship and learning together and sharing knowledge. We're a highly social species. And when done right, restoration can be a very social experience. And um, that's, that's a great read also, but I just, I want to tell everybody thank you and let's keep learning. Well, ladies, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We've learned so much. Um, your project really, Cassidy, to your point, Ellie, to your point, um, it, it's really a, a really cool showcase of what like-minded people can do if they're willing to take off the badge and say, I'm just here to to see what we can learn and to get get dirty and and get work done so it's cool um i i encourage our listeners to to grab a copy of the pheasants forever quail forever december issue and read the article in it it lists all of the many many partners that have been talked about on this podcast and um, we are remiss if we misspoke and didn't add one but they are listed there so you can read them and read much more about the project, how it was done, and maybe some of the materials if you're interested in in getting um, this done on maybe your land. So uh, just a, a great resource. And um, yeah, we, ho- we hope we hope this podcast challenges you to think differently about maybe your land or, or um, land that you visit. And as always, we appreciate your listening support. We encourage you to find our podcast on your local listening device, whether that's iTunes store or, or your favorite podcast spot. As always, please like, share, follow. Um, any of the links that we've talked about in this podcast will be linked in our show notes. And now, as always, we will see you outdoors. Outdoors.